Last week we began looking at the various ways Holy Scripture directs us to respond to sinning Christians. This morning is part two of a two-part series on that subject, how to respond to sinning Christians. Last time we looked at four distinct ways to respond to some of these sinning Christians. Do you remember what those four distinct ways were? Number one, we are to respond to some sinning Christians by addressing them with forgiveness. We confront them, they repent, and we forgive. Secondly, we are to respond to some sinning Christians by admonishing them in their sin. They are confronted, and they refuse to repent, and we admonish them. Thirdly, we are to respond to some sinning Christians by avoiding their crafty doctrine. They would purport to be followers of Jesus Christ, and yet they would be teaching things for which we would need to avoid either the teaching itself or even they themselves and their teaching. And number four, we are to respond to sinning Christians by announcing their works of darkness. Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians, for instance, that rather than being involved in unfruitful works of darkness, we are to rather expose those unfruitful works of darkness. And so those are four ways in which we are to respond to some sinning Christians. For this morning's message, I want to add a fifth and final way that we are to respond to some sinning Christians. It goes along somewhat with the first one that I mentioned last time and reviewed for you this morning, but it goes a little bit further, and I would give that fifth and final way to respond to some sinning Christians like this. Respond to some sinning Christians by eventually alerting the church leadership. By eventually alerting the church leadership. There are times in the life of the church when someone simply doesn't respond to the loving admonishment of his or her fellow members of a local church. What do you do? How do you respond? How do you respond to those situations in which you confront someone and they do not repent? If they do, of course, you forgive them. You have a restored relationship. They have a restored relationship with the Lord and with His people. But what if they don't repent? What if they refuse to do so? I want you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18 a text which is no doubt familiar to us, but frankly within the professing church around the world is one of the lost chapters of the Bible. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. Matthew 18, 15 says, If your brother sins, you might have the words against you in the text, It is mentioned in Luke 17, probably not here. If your brother sins, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. 
If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This, of course, is the classic biblical text on what is called official church discipline. And there are four steps in this so-called process that are outlined by our Lord Jesus Christ here. And I want to go over those with you this morning because while this is a process from beginning to end and may also include steps in between these four, these are at least the four steps that must be followed by some who are responding to sinning Christians who are not repenting. Let's call the first one private confrontation and admonition. Private confrontation and admonition. Look back at verse 15. If your brother sins... Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now obviously it's exactly like that first one that we talked about last time, of course. We respond to some sinning Christians by addressing them with forgiveness. But that, of course, implies that they're going to repent. And even here, of course, it implies... In fact, it even explicitly states, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And frankly, this is where, and rightly so in my judgment, most church discipline begins and ends. The vast majority of cases. And it should be. Because as followers of Christ, we want to do what we can to follow him. And when we are in sin, when we are fallen into a trespass, We need our brothers and sisters in Christ to come alongside us and to help us so that we can respond appropriately. Someone is in need of private admonition and they receive this admonishment. Their fault is pointed out to them and they repent of their sins and they are growing in further holiness. That's that's what it says here. That's what it's all about as we hold one another accountable in the body of Christ. And notice that Jesus says that this is to be done between you and him alone. This must be done in a strictly confidential manner. And that, of course, for the purpose of gaining a brother without any public warrant of that sin, without any public accountability, this is a private matter. And this, of course, implies that this person's sin is serious and it must be dealt with in a prayerful thoughtful way. Serious because someone is going, someone sees something, and if this sin is serious, implied that it is, it may be consequentially significant enough 
that even James chapter 5 verses 19 and 20 says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is important. This is crucial in the body of Christ. This suggests the absolute importance of becoming involved in the process of confronting and admonishing persons who have sinned and are in need of our help for God's glory and for their good. This puts a premium, doesn't it, on the accountability of the body of Christ. No longer should anyone assume, if they were to study Matthew 18, that they could say about themselves, oh, well, look, I've got enough problems in my own life. I've got enough issues in my own heart. I don't need to go around checking with others about theirs. When I see their actions or when I hear their words, I've got enough issues to work on in my own life. And so I would never, ever do this. Matthew 18 says, you must. Someone's in danger of sinning in such a way for which Jesus would outline a further process if they don't repent. Go to them now so that that doesn't come. Go to them as soon as you can, as soon as you see this sparking up in their life. Turn that soul around, that wandering soul. And we must be as realistic as the Bible is regarding all of our tendencies as believers to have blinders on when it comes to sin. Listen to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Take care, brothers lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's a serious thing, this deceitfulness of sin. We can't just assume that everyone who names the name of Christ will forever and always respond in genuine obedience to Christ. And sometimes we will encounter those whose profession of Christ doesn't seem to match their obedience to Christ. We must exhort them so that they may know whether or not they're in the faith and that they're walking under the Lordship of Christ. This, by the way, is why the Apostle Paul challenged the Corinthian congregation of his own day with these words, 2 Corinthians 13.5, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, he says, or do you not realize about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Very sobering words. He's telling a congregation these things. He's not making an assumption that everyone within the Corinthian congregation were true believers. He's telling them to test themselves. Or do you not know that Jesus Christ lives in you unless indeed you fail the test? Turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. This is another kind of test. It's along these same lines. This is the very reason that the writer to the Hebrews writes what he does in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 5. He tells us very clearly there that there is going to be discipline within the church. The writer to Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, 5, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? 
My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, that is, earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He, God, the Lord Himself, disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness." For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord." Verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears." This is a very serious thing, this issue of sin. And we all have blinders on. And we all could even be blinded to the very reality of whether or not we know Jesus Christ at all. And from everyone who has a sin for which that sin is bewitching them versus someone all the way to the place where they don't really know if they're a Christian at all and everybody in between, they need our help. They need our accountability. And you must then with this first step of church discipline lovingly seek to restore to a biblical view and a lifestyle and according to our Lord's blessing, your brother and sister. And if it's If they listen to you, Jesus says there, you've gained or you've won your brother. What a wonderful thing. What a wonderful thing we have with fellow members of the body of Christ who come alongside us to help us, to nurture us, to confront us, to hold us accountable. We ought to be humble enough to receive them. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, Proverbs 27, 6 says. Proverbs 26, 17, iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. You see, you must make sure that you're coming to your brother with humility and with spiritual goals and spiritual aspirations like Galatians 6, one and following tells us, knowing that at some point either you or I might need to be the person on the other end of that accountability. And we must also remember, I might add, You could be going to your brother or your sister not just to seek to admonish them, but also to carefully ensure that you have the proper facts of the matter. Maybe someone believes that they have seen someone in sin and they go to that brother or that sister and they find out that that situation was completely different than what they assumed. You can't always assume that you're seeing someone in sin. Go to them, talk to them, seek out that person, try to determine the facts of a matter. 
That's all bound up in that first step. There's a second one, however. I call it prepared investigation and documentation. Prepared investigation and documentation. The first one is private. It's a confrontation and an admonition. If you believe that that person is truly guilty, but sometimes maybe you're not sure altogether, or maybe you're sure and that person refuses to repent of of those things, you're convinced, but you need some help. Look at verse 16 of Matthew 18. But if he does not listen, take one or two others among you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. All right, this is step two. And step two of the church discipline process provides a kind of shield of protection, we might say, in a couple of different ways. One, so that the accuser himself is not the only one bringing an accusation and therefore can't be charged with sort of a he said, she said situation, but also that the one being accused isn't being accused falsely of a sin that maybe he or she didn't commit. This is a double kind of protection. This step is to ensure that a loving confrontation is documented and investigated properly. And of course, within this step, there may be several steps that are taken. There may be many steps that are taken. It could involve even asking the church leadership to help in the documentation and in the investigation process. Clear communication is needed in this step, especially, and witnesses to the confrontation need to understand, has there been a determination of a true sin or sins? Should there be an investigation with the full intent of trying to determine whether or not this person is truly guilty? Or are they innocent? Could include a number of meetings with the accused and the witnesses. And if and when the elders become involved, they may even need to repeat some of these steps in order to absolutely ensure that a proper communication is fair and appropriate and a proper investigation has been undertaken, a proper documentation of the facts. That's the two or three witnesses. They're cooperators. They try to corroborate the truth. They try to witness even the confrontation with two or three. And of course, I guess that the reasons for these measures and how they are taken is to protect both the accused and the accuser from wrongful accusations and malicious prosecution. It's very, very important. We're talking about people's reputations here. We're talking about their profession of Christ. We're talking about those who accuse them and uh, their willingness and readiness and their own truth and their own desire for the truth to come out. Evidence must be clearly and compellingly assumed so that the sin is properly investigated and documented. I would say this especially for a leader. You don't have to turn there, but listen to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. It says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, in other words, the two or three witnesses have been able to establish the facts of a matter, presumably in this case with a leader, other elders, they've been able to establish that and the person is not repenting, that church leader, that elder is not repenting. If for those who persist in sin, the Bible says they're to be rebuked in the presence of all, so that all 
the rest may stand in fear. Maybe all the elders, maybe even the entire congregation. It's a fearful thing. And if that weren't enough, Paul adds this, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. And maybe he's adding that for the case of a church leadership for whom they believe they're unaccountable. And maybe it's the good old boys club and they don't think they should be held accountable and maybe they assume they're above all of that and maybe there is an elder who is persisting in sinning and Paul says, do an investigation. Don't believe it unless it's on the basis of two or three witnesses corroborating all the facts. But if it is, rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest may fear when that public rebuke comes. And by the way, the audience for such a public rebuke and the process is God the Father Himself, Christ Jesus the Lord, and all of the elect angels. It's a massive testimony and a witness against impartiality. Leaders are not above the people. They're not above this. The matter for the public rebuke of sin is very serious. And everyone's included here. And someone could be asking, well, how long will all of this take? I mean, what's implied in these steps of discipline? Is it years? Is it months? Or is it just weeks and days? what's, What's the time frame here? Well, Scripture doesn't give us an answer to that. Namely, I'm sure, because each case is very different. Each case has to be investigated on its own merits. But I will say this, in my experience in over 20 years of pastoral ministry with each of the cases of church discipline I've ever dealt with, after there is a determination and an investigation, out of which there may be a lengthy time for that, but once everything can be documented and investigated thoroughly and someone is accused of sinning and does not repent and it can be determined that this is so, time is usually not an ally in those situations. Why? Because you, know, you must deal with those issues swiftly. You, you can't just say, whether it's to a leader or someone else in the congregation, well, we want to give you the next couple of years to repent of these sins. We want you to do the right thing. Sin is so deceitful. And if not under the pressure of a response, a person can answer away all of the issues. They can skirt the accountability. And normally a person's refusal to repent of documented sin is to be dealt with in a swift yet loving manner so that the person doesn't linger in their sin. It's like somebody going off a cliff. You you don't warn them with the documentation and investigation that the cliff is just around the corner and they know they're going there and you know they're going there and you keep warning them without grabbing them by the hand, doing whatever you can to stop them from going over the side. It's very, very important. And if and when this pronounced confrontation and investigation yields a guilty verdict, Jesus then lays out a third step if the accused does not repent. Number three, look at the first part of verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. This is what I call pronounced deliberation 
and communication. Pronounced deliberation and communication. You see, by that time, surely the elders, the church leaders have become involved. And if the elders of a local church unambiguously and unanimously agree to the facts of the matter, including the documentation and the investigation of sin, it's been proven, these steps have all been taken, and that may take a short or long time, whatever the case may be in individual situations, and along with a staunch refusal of the person to repent, then Jesus says the entire church must be told. And notice that these refusals are based upon dialogue between the accused and his or her accusers. There's a lot of dialogue going on. And there is, therefore, a public communication, another kind of dialogue before the whole church. And this, of course, is so that the church can hear of their fellow members' refusal to submit to the authority of the Word of God and it's the whole church's responsibility that if they know the person, they should make an urgent appeal for that person to repent of their sin. Typically here at the Bible Church, what we've done is in rare cases where church discipline has had to come to this public level where I'm standing here or the chairman of our elders and we're having to do that, it is in fact that public announcement in our worship service usually that an erring brother or sister is refusing to repent of sin and that we need as collective members of the body of Christ to go after that person, to reach that person with a collective appeal to repent. It isn't necessary for all of us to know all of the details at that time or how the private confrontation and investigation is all played out. It's enough, however, to know that when it's necessary in the body of a local group of assembled Christians that we, we search out, we seek out someone for whom they're named in that service and we go after them and we talk to them, we plead with them to respond to the authority of the church and of the leaders as they submit themselves to the Word of God. This is the goal of all of our former formal public discipline, and it is this restoration. We want you to be restored, brother. Sister, we want you to come into a right relationship with the Lord. You can't, you can't say that Christ is your Lord and still curry sin in your life. You can't do it. That's why when Paul confronted the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13.5, that passage I quoted to you, he says in verse 9, a little later on, this is the goal, this is the goal of all church discipline. Here it is. Here's what he says to them. Your restoration, 2 Corinthians 13, 9, is what we pray for. That's why we do what we do. Is church dis discipline punitive? Yes, in some ways it is. Is church discipline, if it comes to that level where there's a public acknowledgement, acknowledgement that someone is in sin and they need to repent... Is that, in a sense, a public issue for which there's shame involved? Yes. Is there a sense in which this discipline of the Lord, like Hebrews 12, Hebrews chapter 3, is pressing on that person the weight of their sin, has forced this to become a public issue? Yes. 
All of those things are true. But the ultimate goal, the ultimate desire for all of it is so that this person, through the instrumentality of human beings under the authority of the Word of God itself and under the Lord Jesus Christ as the head of the church himself, is restoration. Restoring them. That's the absolute goal. When we bring someone's name before you, it's not for the purpose of tearing them down. It's for the purpose of ultimately building them up. It's not for the sole purpose of attempting to harm the reputation of someone. It isn't for the sole purpose of kicking someone when they're down. It isn't for the purpose of driving them out of the church. It is rather for the purpose of restoring them to a right relationship with the Lord whom they profess to obey and to restore them to a regular attendance and fellowship and ministry based on their repentance to the Lord's people. That's what it is. And what if that person does repent? What if even that third step comes and we have to mention that name and that person sensing the weight of their sin upon them and people coming after them, not necessarily even the whole church, but those who know of that person. In a church our size, you may not even know of a person who's mentioned publicly from this pulpit. But if you know them, you go after them and the the weight of, of your encouragement, your admonition, your confrontation of them brings to bear upon them a sense in which they say, I must repent. I must become right with the Lord again. I've got to go back with my people what happens if that occurs? Turn in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and I'm thrilled to show you what our response should be. You know what our response should be to those people? We should throw them a party. We should throw them a party. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5, Now if anyone has caused pain, that's a person, of course, who has done something for which this discipline is appropriate, He has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. Paul says, I'm not regularly a part of you, but all of you regularly a part of the fellowship. When a person causes pain, they sin in such a way for which there's public rebuke. There's pain that's brought to all. He says, verse 6, For such a one, presuming now he has repented, this punishment, this punishment of the majority is enough. You've you've brought to bear the majority of you going to this person. You know him. Obviously, in the church in Corinth, there might have been a small enough group, maybe even a house church, for which the punishment, that's the punitive part of it, for someone who sins, and yet they've asked for forgiveness, they've repented of those things, the punishment, Paul says, by the majority is enough. In other words, nothing more needs to be done. Verse 7, here's what you should do. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort Him. Why? If you don't do that, He may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. He says in verse 8, So I beg you to reaffirm your love for Him. And now He's testing them in another way. He's saying, For this is why I write, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. And you know, if someone doesn't forgive, 
If someone continues to say, I will not forgive that person, and yet the leadership on that person's behalf, and maybe even that person giving a public display of repentance, the church leaders have said, we've assessed that repentance, we believe it's real, we believe it's genuine, receive this person back into the fellowship. That's actually a test to see whether or not we're going to truly and genuinely forgive just like we've been forgiven. Remember Matthew 18 last week? And you know, Satan's going to want to do everything he can to thwart that whole process. And that's why Paul says here, so that we would not, verse 11, be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. What would Satan do? Try to drive a wedge in the fellowship? Try to make it appear as though that person really isn't repentant? Try to cast in your heart the idea that that person should not be forgiven? This is an amazing text. We ought to, if the person is truly repentant and it can be manifested that way and the leadership will take care of the assessment of that and so will you, we ought to rather throw them a party. One of the prodigals have come home. I remember one night on a Sunday night many years ago now when our church was located on Breckenridge and someone came and they'd been in our church for several months prior to that. We'd met privately because that person had sinned against the Lord and was disciplined all the way out of the church and we found out that this person had started attending another fellowship and I contacted that church and they agreed to work with us in the discipline process being two sister churches who wanted to do the right thing and so we all met together including the accused and we worked out a process in which this person presumably because they wanted to attend another church again wanted to be able to say I repent They just didn't know what the process entailed. And so we talked about it. We came up with a plan and a strategy. And for several months, we watched that person. We assessed the repentance. We watched the faithfulness. We heard the words, but then we saw the opportunity for the words to be put into action. And ultimately, on a Sunday night, I brought that person before you as a congregation. Some of you may even remember it. And that person spoke of a wonderful repentance. And even said, while I never ever want to go through something like that again, and while I now see I should never have gone through it ever, if, however, this is a help to you to never do what I did, then all of this has been worth it. And even extemporaneously, spontaneously, without my doing anything, I simply read Second Corinthians chapter 2 and said, we ought to throw this person a party. And I was just about to preach and spontaneously people just began getting up out of their seats and lining up to love this person, to reaffirm their love for that person. And about two hours later we were finished. It was the best sermon I never preached. (laughs) That's the way it's supposed to work. 2 Corinthians 2, reaffirm your love for them. But... What if someone continues to refuse? All of that heart and love, all of that desire, all of the confrontation, all of the investigation, the documentation, all of the overtures of love and grace, and all of the admonitions to repent and turn from sin are all refused. Fourth and final step Jesus gives us. Look at the latter part of verse 17 all the way through verse 20. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, 
Let him be to you as a Gentile, that is an unbeliever, and a tax collector, that is an outcast. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two or three of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. You see, a professing believer in this situation must know, according to Jesus' own words here, that heaven itself is weighing in on the discipline. This isn't a local church enacting discipline upon someone at a mere human level. That's not what's going on here. It is going on on that level, but that's not the mere human level. Look at verse 18 especially if you have an ESV, an English Standard Version of the Bible, the alternate translation in the bottom, what I quoted when I first quoted it this morning, captures the sense of what's occurring in this discipline process. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. What's the implication of the verbal idea there? The church is simply carrying through on what Jesus has already determined. And what has He determined? There's a denunciation here. There's a public denunciation that sin is to be dealt with. We can't sugarcoat this. This is a denunciation of sin. And look at verses 19 and 20. Speaking of the local assembly of believers who are participating in the discipline process along with the church's leadership. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, taking that two or three kind of witnessing, that legislative witnessing, that documentation, that investigation, and where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. That's a promise. It's a promise that within the context of official church discipline, the church, including its leader, And its people have the authority of the Lord Jesus Himself as well as God the Father Almighty. Do you see that? It will be done for them by my Father in heaven. He's involved. And for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Jesus is involved. And what's the denunciation? It's the denunciation that sin is what it is. It's deceitful. It causes people not to turn from it. The unrepentant cannot and will not be tolerated in the Christian community. You can't say you love Jesus and love your sin at the same time. There has to be a denunciation of it. There's a sobriety here. And there's a swiftness of action that must be articulated. And the person who refuses to listen to the church must be publicly declared to be something that he wasn't declared to be before. And what is that? Look at verse 17. There's a note of sadness and even possibly dismay in Jesus' words. And if he refuses to listen even to the church. Maybe that's the way we ought to emphasize it. In other words, Jesus is saying you go once to this person... And then with two or three and everything is investigated and documented and then you bring it before the whole church and then they go and they say, repent, repent. And it's almost as Jesus is saying with sadness and dismay in His his words coming from His heart, He says, and if He refuses to listen even to the church, 
then put him out. All the private confrontation and admonition has not engendered repentance. All the private investigation and documentation, all the pronounced deliberation and communication, and he's still unrepentant. And now there's this public denunciation and a declaration. He's to be treated as an unbeliever and an outcast. Now that doesn't automatically mean that he is an unbeliever. Make no mistake about it. Jesus is not saying... We declare that this person is an unbeliever. He says he's to be treated as an unbeliever. Very important words. He's to be treated as one. Well, how do you treat an unbeliever? What are the steps for the treatment of a professing believer who refuses to repent of known documented sin? Well, listen to our own church bylaws on this subject. Very wise. Listen to it. The fourth step of church discipline is public dismissal or disfellowshipping from the congregation. The public announcement of discipline shall always be accompanied by prayer that God will graciously use the discipline for His own glory, the restoration of the offender, and the edification of the church. This announcement may be made during a regular worship service at a special meeting of the congregation or by letter. Public dismissal precludes his attendance at all public meetings in keeping with the Apostle Paul's instruction in 1 Corinthians 5, 9-13. He is to be treated as one who rejects the gospel of Christ, warned of the consequences of his sin, and exhorted to come to a saving relationship with the Christ he once confessed. The church should continue to pray for the individual, imploring God to bring about repentance. You see, that's, that's how you treat such a one. And there was a reference there to 1 Corinthians 5. Let's close with looking at 1 Corinthians 5. This is an important elucidation of the final step of discipline. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is an account of someone who was sexually immoral, having relations with his father's wife, a stepmother no doubt, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual, sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, unbelievers, for a man has his father's wife by marriage an incestuous relationship. And he says in verse 2, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Apparently, the Corinthians, we don't know for sure, but maybe they they had uh, bought the licentious definition of the grace of God where if somebody was in sin, we would just extol the sin because God's grace would abound. Somebody's sinning in the church, well, that just means that God's grace is going to abound all the more. He says, you're arrogant about this. Don't be arrogant. Rather, you should mourn. Let him who does this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. 
When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, by the way, that's what occurs every time we worship together as the collected body of the Bible Church of Little Rock. It's in the name of the Lord Jesus and it's in the presence and the power of the Lord Jesus. And he says in verse 5, here's what you are to do. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Very important word. The final step of church discipline is actually not just a denunciation and not just a declaration, but a delivering. A delivering of a person who is refusing to repent of sin over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Maybe talking about his physical life, certainly, definitely talking about his mind. Why? For the purpose... Look at that purpose clause there in verse 5. So that, or for the very purpose that, his spirit, his inner person may be saved in the day of the Lord. Is this negative? Most certainly. Could it be positive? Yes. For the very instrumentality of the church to deliver someone over to Satan for the very destruction of his mind so that the Holy Spirit, by taking the restraints off this person who once professed Christ, they get out into the world, they really begin to realize what the world is offering, their mind is deluded, they don't know what they're doing, they come to their senses, and that their spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Oh yes, this is punitive, but it's also restorative. That's what we're after here. We're after the opportunity for this person to be saved in the day of the Lord. The Lord's coming. And he says, your boasting, verse 6, is not good. And then he tells them this. This is what is going on when someone is expelled or excommunicated or disfellowship. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? The church is seen as a lump of dough. And a little leaven leavens that lump. A little unconfessed sin, unrepented of sin. Somebody, not an irreligious lost person. That's not who Paul's talking about there. He's not talking about whether or not someone who is from the world, who's never confessed Christ to the world, who's coming into the fellowship. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, we welcome you. If you've never professed Jesus Christ, we welcome you. This is not talking about you. This is talking about someone who professes Jesus Christ, who says he's walking in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet who is involved in sexual immorality. And Paul is saying, do you not understand that you are keeping this person in the fellowship, and that's leaven, and a little leaven will leaven the whole lump of dough. Verse 7, here's the command, cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. It's a new community. We don't do the things that we used to do. We're marked out as different. We're not involved in sexual immorality, and we're surely not involved in the kind of sexual immorality that even the pagans don't practice. He says, let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, That's the old life, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You see, that's the way we live in the new community in Christ. There's sincerity and truth. And when someone comes to us and they confront us, and maybe we are involved in sexual immorality, but because we're a new community in Christ, we're a new humanity, we're not under the old Adam, we're under the Christ of God, Jesus Himself is the head of the church, and we live with sincerity and truth in the church. 
Somebody comes to us, we are immoral. They confront us, we repent. Because we're sincere and we want to live in the truth. And then very wise words, verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. In other words, I've already told you how to deal with this man. I, I wrote to you not to associate. That gets back to some of that idea that we were talking about last time in terms of not being around, not having fellowship, not being with people under the assumption that I claim Christ, they claim Christ, I'm walking in holiness When sin is in my life, I confess it, I repent of it. When people hold me accountable, I do the right thing. And this person who claims Christ says, no, I'm going to walk in my own path. The two can't walk together. There's no agreement between the two. Both of you say you're loving Christ. Both of you say you're following Christ. But one is and one is not. There's going to be division there. You can't do that. He says now, qualifier, verse 10, I'm not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. He says, look, I'm not telling you that you can't associate with them. When you go outside the public fellowship, you know you're going into that realm, that world, and when you're in that world, you know they're going to be sexually immoral people and greedy people and drunkards and idolaters. And if I told you not to associate with them, you'd have to be dead. You'd have to go out of the world. That's not what I'm telling you. He's saying, verse 11, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. See, that's the difference. That's the qualifier. In essence, you have three groups here. You've got the Christians who are claiming the Lordship of Jesus Christ and they're walking in holiness and righteousness and even when they do sin, they're confronted with it, they're held accountable with it and they repent of it and they continue to walk in holiness before the Lord and they're sanctified and they're growing in Christ. And then you have the world out there who doesn't have our standards and even if they were to come in here, we'd say we welcome you but we're still going to preach Jesus Christ. We're still going to challenge you to put away your wickedness and follow Jesus Christ according to the glorious gospel But there's this third category, this third person who wants both of those and he wants to do it within the fellowship. I want Christ. I want salvation. But I want my lifestyle. I want what I'm doing. He says, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler... And then he says, not even to eat with such a one. Table fellowship. It's implying that there's an unbroken relationship of Christian fellowship between me and yourself. You and I will sit down at a breakfast or a lunch or a dinner, whether it's inside these four walls or not, and when we sit across from someone in our fellowship who says, I love Jesus Christ, I claim the Lordship of Christ. I want to live under His glory. We have sweet fellowship. Sweet fellowship. We're both going down the same path. And we can hold each other accountable. And we can work on each other to do that very thing so that we can walk in genuine fellowship and love. But then you sit down with another person and they say they're a Christian. They say they love Christ. But they're not willing to stand under the Lordship of Christ. To do the things of Christ. To obey the Word of Christ. And you say to that person in this fourth and final step, I cannot have fellowship with you like this. 
I'm not supposed to eat with you in fellowship as though the two of us are walking down the same path together. I need to tell you, brother, sister, you must repent. We cannot have an association like we used to have. You cannot continue to live that lifestyle and assume that in living that lifestyle, you and I are at one with the church and with the Lord. We're not. You need to repent. Verse 12, he says, For what have I, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? That's the world. It is, not those, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Telling us, you've got to deal with this, this person. God judges the outside. He's going to judge the outside world. He's going to judge unbelievers. And then this clear command, purge the evil from among you. Some would say, but this is, this is harsh. This is unloving. I mean, can't they come to the public worship services at least to continue to hear the gospel? I mean, maybe it just means that they can't partake of the Lord's Supper Or maybe it means that they just simply are barred from involvement in ministry opportunities, but can't they participate in in everything else? Well, to this it seems to me 1 Corinthians 5 is clear, and even 2 Corinthians chapter 6 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. If we're to treat them as unbelievers, we can't be unequally yoked with them as though Nothing has really occurred, that there's no brokenness in our fellowship. He says, but what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, another name for Satan? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? You see, if they're declared to be an unbeliever, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Verse 16, they're serving their own idols. In this case... 1 Corinthians 5, the idol of sexual immorality. We are the temple of the living God, he says. He says in verse 17, Go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and I will welcome you and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. You see, there's a different way to live inside the church. Chapter 7, verse 1, Since we have these promises, beloved, Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, including that sexual immorality, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Oh, yes, it's true that if an unbeliever comes in, and according to 1 Corinthians 14, he comes in, he doesn't say he loves Christ, he's not a follower of Jesus Christ, he just comes in because he saw a whole bunch of group of people meeting, and he comes in, And he hears preaching, the prophecy of the Word of God. And he hears this wonderful preaching. And it says his heart is convicted, his life is convicted about his own works. And he looks around and he says, surely God is in this place. But that's far different than somebody who says, I love Christ, but I don't want to follow Christ. We have to deal with them differently. We cannot involve ourselves with someone who claims to yet have a relationship with the Lord while walking in flagrant disobedience to the Lord. And Paul says it will happen because a little leaven, if you don't deal with it, will leaven the whole lump of dough. It's not as though you let the person stay in for the benefit of their continuing to hear the gospel and assume that the whole lump of dough will root out the leaven. Rather, it's a little leaven will leaven the whole lump of dough. Take a flask of clean, pure water and you put one drop of ink into it and it affects 
the whole glass. Listen to J. Carl Laney from his book, A Guide to Church Discipline, as we close. It's a very important point. This is a point where a lot of people stumble in the sense of, well, how do we treat this person? Very practical questions. I'm not at all saying that these are easy things. They're not easy. None of these things are easy matters, as though there's a quick one, two, three, four step process. These things are very complex. We have to do all we can with Solomonic wisdom to try to deal with it. This is what Carl Laney says to help us, and I think he does. He says, some would suggest that Paul is speaking here, 1 Corinthians 5, of a mild form of discipline which falls short of the final step mentioned by Jesus in Matthew 18, 17. In other words, there are some who say, well, I think you've got to separate out 1 Corinthians 5 from Matthew 18. That's talking about something unique. That's talking about something that's different. That's not even talking about the classic church discipline like Matthew 18 does. He says, many have taken it to refer to a form of ostracism within the church prior to the step for full excommunication. This view is based on instances in other epistles in which Paul mentions the principle of avoidance. We talked about some of those last time, didn't we? In the context of 1 Corinthians 5, however, Laney says it seems clear that Paul is thinking of that one final step of discipline Jesus specified in Matthew 18, 17. This is evident from Paul's final words in verse 13, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. He goes on to say, to, quote, not associate, unquote, with an unrepentant offender is a logical and necessary result of dismissing that person from the assembly of the saints. Such a removal will prevent the offender from enjoying any Christian fellowship or ministry of encouragement by the brethren until he adequately deals with his sin. But what exactly does the command to not associate with the immoral Christian mean? Some have proposed that the command is absolute, that there should be absolutely no contact between believers and an offender under discipline. Others have taken the command as instruction to avoid unnecessary social interchange with a sinning saint. In other words, and I think this is helpful, a wife may speak to her husband and an employee to his boss about necessary matters, but social interchange in a positive, edifying, encouraging manner must be avoided. Clearly, the avoidance involves communication of some sort. The communication would not be of the warm, friendly, buddy-buddy type, but it would not be cordial. It would be a statement to the offender that he or she is standing outside the fellowship of the church and is urged to repent. Biblical avoidance must communicate that the offender has forsaken the way of Christian discipleship. At the same time, it must communicate the message, and this is important, that full restoration is offered on the basis of confession and repentance. See, you're you're always holding out the hope. You, You can't act as though nothing's ever happened and as though the person is always seen still being around still involved and still soaking up all of the Christian fellowship and ministry. No, there there is an aspect in which they're excommunicated, but when you see them and even initiating time with them, you say, brother, is it at this time that you will confess and repent? You know, I, I would love to go out with you and have a meal, but there's this matter that we need to talk about. In fact, that will... 
That will cover our entire conversation, whether it's on the phone or in person. We need to talk, and every time we talk, it's going to be the same thing. Are you willing to repent at this time? Come back to the fellowship. Repent of sin. Be in a right relationship with Christ and His people. Laney says, Paul instructs believers not to continue intimate and personal association with one who is undergoing church discipline, lest the church, this is you now, lest the church think the discipline was of no consequence and lest the offender think the church wasn't serious about the excommunication. See, there's a level of seriousness on both sides. Always with an attitude that I stand ready to forgive, we stand ready to forgive, love will cover a multitude of sins if you would but confess and repent. I gave you an example of someone who did that very thing. They are among us today, worshiping the Lord. And you know what the wonderful thing about it is? Most of you don't even know who that is, and you don't need to. Because they've been forgiven. And we hold out our hearts to anyone to be forgiven and to repent of their sins. Oh, What an opportunity someone has, even to their last breath. But we can't act with them as though nothing's ever happened. I ask you this morning, as we come now to the Lord's table, are you thinking soberly and rightly about the seriousness of the discipline of the Lord? My friends, this is a choice opportunity to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. And if you are whether you're walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. I want you to bow your heads with me. In that opportunity to examine, I ask you, if someone is currently confronting you about your sin, are you listening repentantly? Are you listening to them? Before it ever comes to any kind of public level, are you listening Are you humble? If others of you have proceeded even on to a step two of the discipline process, even if it's unknown among us in the leadership, it's only two or three, are you responding to their pleas to repent? They love you. They're trying to gather the facts and corroborate the evidence. And I would even say that if we as a leadership have mentioned anyone from this pulpit who has even gone to a step three, if you're here, we plead with you to repent. If you hear this recorded message, not being here today, and you have even experienced the full disfellowshipping from this or any other church. Use these words, my words, as an instrument to repent. Are you willing now to follow Jesus Christ as Lord? Come and talk. If you're part of another church, we will help you go back to the other church and to work things out. If you are part of this church, come and 
repent before the Lord and His people. We want to forgive and restore. The Lord Himself stands ready to forgive and to restore the years the locusts have eaten. O Lord, as we examine ourselves this morning before Your table, may it be something that we see with sobriety and and fear because sin is so deceitful and so serious. Lord, I pray that we would truly hold one another accountable and when someone comes to us, we would not brush them off. And certainly if two or three come to us, may we see it as serious. May we repent and turn and follow Christ and be reconciled to our brothers and sisters. Lord, let us partake now of the bread and the cup in a worthy manner so that we would not invite your discipline but your approval and your blessing. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.